I want to um, start off this time with a message. I mean, with a game, actually. A little activity. And uh, it's called the syllable game. Syllable game. Some of you guys know this. It's a very simple game where you emphasize every syllable of a phrase. For example, David is buff. So I would say, David is buff. David is buff. David is buff. And David is buff. You guys get it, right? The syllable. Now, I want us to do it together. But let's try this with the phrase, Merry Christmas. All right? Merry Christmas. Here we go. One, two, three. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Easy, right? All right, let's do a, a longer, a longer, a little longer one. The vision of our church is calling all to the feast. <laughs> calling all to the feast. Let's try this. One, two, three, go. Calling all to the feast. 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 All right, you guys did a good job. The last one I would like us to do is a very simple one. It's a very silly exercise, but you guys will get why I'm doing this. And this last phrase is, God loves me. God loves me. Are you guys ready? Let's do this slowly. One, two, three, go. God loves me. God loves me. And God loves me. Amen. Reason why I did this simple activity to start off this sermon is we're talking about emphasis here. We're talking about emphasis. And this simple yet profound statement, God loves me. God loves me. I want to give us about 20 to 30 seconds to just think about this simple phrase, God loves me. I want us to contemplate this truth. And let me just give, you, give us about 20 to 30 seconds in silence. God loves me. God loves me. Father, we just thank you for this time we can gather together. And this truth that you love me, that you love us here. We pray, Holy Spirit, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would open the eyes of our heart. That we would know today, we would be reminded once again that we are loved by you. I pray if there's anybody in this room that has not experienced or believed that they are loved by you, I pray that today would be the day that they would walk out these doors today knowing confidently that we are loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you thought about that phrase, God loves me, I wonder what the point of emphasis for you was. Is it God loves me? This almighty God loves me. Is it God loves me? The way that he showed his love that we thought about? Or is it God loves me? 
how can God love me? You know, I feel like everybody in this room has different points of emphasis. And we think about these three simple words, God loves me. And today I want to invite us into returning back to restoring the joy of our salvation. The joy of our salvation. Today, the third candle of Advent was lit, which was a candle of joy. Candle of joy. Which is different from what it means to be happy. Because you can go through so much suffering and difficulties in life, but still have joy in your heart. Take Jesus, for example, when it says that he carried the cross and endured the cross with joy set before him. And today, as we explore this um, phrase, I would like us to turn to Psalm chapter 8. Let's turn, let's turn to the 8th chapter of Psalm. Give us some time to turn there. I'm reading from the ESV. Psalm chapter 8. David sings, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. This short psalm of nine verses is so dense. As we read this psalm together, I wonder what is the point of emphasis as we read this psalm? What is the point of emphasis? What sticks out to you? As you read this psalm, as we read the psalm of David, does this psalm highlight how great and how massive and how glorious God is? Is that what stuck out to you? Or does this psalm, when we read it, does it emphasize how glorious or how small we are as humans? How does this psalm speak to each and every one of us here? What is the point of emphasis here? When I thought about that phrase, God loves me. And I meditated and I was contemplating on this psalm as preparing for this message. I kept going back and forth. I paused at each and every word, God, God. And I go through this psalm and I'm going through all this revelation. Wow. God is so great. And then I think about God loves. 
this God, the way that he expressed his love. I started meditating on that and I was like, wow, how great is the way that he expressed his love. And then I thought about God loves me. But for some reason, when I said this phrase, I said it like this as a question mark. God loves me? Maybe some of us in here, you're more confident than I. But for me, automatically, it didn't come out like God loves me. It came out like God loves me. God loves me. The point of emphasis when I read this, for me, was verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I, Lord, that you love me? God loves me? In verse 1, if we can imagine together, David, he's out in the fields. And he's contemplating. He's taking some time to rest and Sabbath. And he's looking to the heavens. He's looking to all creation. And David is in awe. David is in awe. He's taking some time to wonder who God is. He starts off, our Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, how majestic is your name. That word, there are many names of God. One of the names of God is Adonai. Can we all say Adonai? In the scripture here, David is saying Adonai. And what kind of tone comes with this name is actually a kingly tone. It's a name that is associated with royalty. It's attributing to God that you are a king. You are God, but you are the king of kings. And he's remembering, David is in awe of who he is. God, you are excellent. You are glorious. God, you are royal. You are my king. And here is King David saying to God, you are the king. The king of kings. He's saying this. You have set your glory above the heavens. What's da- what is David trying to express here? He's trying to say this. There are no bounds to how glorious you are. All of our small caricatures of how we imagine God to be falls infinitely short of who he actually is. Any moment of encounter and experience of what we receive and experience of God, it falls infinitely short of who God is. Heaven has no bounds to contain how glorious and how beautiful God is. God is transcendent. He transcends above all categories of beauty and glory. God is the Genesis 1 God. He's the uncreated God. He is God the Trinity as we sung to today. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is no one like our God. This is a God we worship. And I, I just want to read a little bit of scripture here. And I love how Job expresses the magnificence of God. And let me just, if we could just listen let me just read parts of Job chapter 26 and 38. You could, read, you could read all of that and be enamored of who God is. Let me just say right here. Job says this. He sees how small he is and how great God is. He says this. God, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the, cloud, the, the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters. 
for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake, aghast at his rebuke. By his power, he churned up the sea. By his wisdom, he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath, the skies became fair. His hand pierced the gliding serpent. And I love this. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? All these words that we read that we understand. These are just a mere whisper. Attempting to describe who God is. And then something interesting happens. And then we move on to verse 2. If you read verse 2, something shifts. In verse 2, the point of emphasis, it shifts from the glory of God to what? All of a sudden, it talks about man. It says this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I love this verse. All of a sudden, he's talking about the glory of God and he shifts unto a little baby. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, he has established strength. Out of babies and infants, God is going to use to silence the enemy and to still the avengers. What does this mean? He's not saying this literally when babies are like, Meh, and then the enemy runs away. He's not saying literally babies and infants. What is he talking about? He's describing just the frailty, the smallness of man. He's describing babies symbolize weakness and helplessness. Babies can do nothing but cry and poo. David will find out soon. <laughs> He's having a baby soon. Babies are weak. They have no wisdom or knowledge. They're utterly dependent on others. In the functional way, they're insignificant. But this is what's crazy. God chooses to defeat enemies with babies. With frail human beings. What is David trying to say here? It's not just God defeating enemies directly. It's God defeating enemies through weak beings. That's what makes God so amazing. God can directly defeat his enemies. But God chooses to defeat his enemies through human agency. You and I. John Piper, he says this. God not only defeats his foes with the weakness of children, but he rules his world with the weakness of men. And that gives us hope and purpose, doesn't it? That means none of us here are disqualified to express the glory of God. Amen? None of us are disqualified. God can display, display his, his beauty through babies. God can display His glory. You can glorify God as much as anyone can. Verse 3. It goes back to the focus on God. It goes back to the focus on God when He says, Look, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. He's contemplating again. He's looking at all creation. 
He's looking at the birds. He's looking at the skies. He's looking at the mountains. He's looking at all creation. And he's awestruck again. Do you guys ever experience that? I think Korea is a beautiful country. There are days when you look at the skies, you're like, wow. God, there are days when God chooses to paint the skies in a certain way, and we're just like awestruck. I'm going to read this. David also considers God's splendor above the heavens. Of course, David has no telescope to show him how big the universe is. The sheer vastness of outer space and the coordination of it all sound astounding. If you could travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you eight minutes to get to the sun. To go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way would take you about 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of some 20 galaxies known as the local group. To cross that group, you have to travel for 2 million years. The local group belongs to this thing called the Virgo Cluster. I don't know what this is, right? The Virgo Cluster, right? Part of an even larger local supercluster, which is half billion years across. To cross the entire universe as we know it would take you 20 billion light years. And this is just a speck from the perspective of God. Who are we? And I love how the message translation says this verse. And David says, I look up to your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then, then I look to my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? What is it about us that grabs your attention, God? What is man that you are mindful of him? In the Hebrew, if it's translated, it says, what is, who are we that you would visit us? Show attention to us. Not just acknowledge that we're there, but give focus and full attention to each and every one of us. Who are we that we get that attention from Genesis 1 God? Our seemingly insignificance, our smallness. God loves me? God loves me? When David thought about how vast a dominion God had given to man, it made him praise God all over again. That this humble creature, you and I, humble in light of the majesty of the universe, humble in light of its present standing under angelic beings, as this verse is saying, we should be given what? As we continue to read this, it says, we should be given authority. It's a demonstration of both the excellence and the goodness of God. There's a quote that says, the stars don't shine, appear to shine so bright without the backdrop of darkness. The stars are there, but they don't look so beautiful and glorious without the backdrop of darkness. And I love this quote. Because day after day, I'm reminded that God, for me, doesn't seem so glorious and amazing all the time. But when I remember my sin, when I remember my depravity, when I remember how selfish I am, when I remember how, how many times I have failed God, when I remember how 
prone to wonder I am from God, when I realize that I have this depravity about me, all of a sudden God becomes beautiful again. With the backdrop of our darkness, the gospel and the goodness of Jesus shines forth in our lives. And here's the thing about God that's amazing. For him to pay attention to us. You know, in this world, people are given attention when they earn something. People are given attention when they kind of advertise themselves. Especially in this day and age, right? In this social media age, people advertise to grab attention, to get likes and all that. It's called merit. Let's say merit. The thing about God is that his attention toward us is not based on our merit. He's not so impressed with our church attendance and one-year Bible reading, although you should do one-year Bible reading. <laughs> Hallelujah. Here's a, here's a crazy thing. We don't bring merit for God's attention, and though he still loves us. You know what we bring? We bring our demerit. It's not that we don't bring anything good enough to God. Actually, we bring our sin. God's grace is so powerful and so bright. Not just, it's not when we think about God, how much merit, you know, have I worked so that you're pleased with me, you see me. No, As a matter of fact, it's opposite. It's way more opposite. We bring our demerit. We bring our sin. We bring our filth. And it's in the presence of our demerit. That's when God says, I'm still going to give my attention. What is man that he is mindful of us? Song of Songs. In the book of Song of Songs, it's an allegory of a husband to a wife. And the confession of the, of the wife she says this really profound phrase. She says, I am dark but lovely. I am dark but lovely. And isn't that amazing? She's acknowledging there is an equal balance in her theology here. I'm not sure she's trying to be theological at the time, but she's realizing I am dark. I know my demerit. I know my unfaithfulness and my weakness. But I am lovely because you made me and you see me. The God of the universe sees each and every one of us. And that's what makes us lovely. That's what makes us lovely. God, he not, not only does God notice us, he cares for us. What is the son of man that you shall visit us? He notices us. And the thing about why God notices us is not because... Like I said, our merit. Actually, ever since the beginning of the original, original intended purpose of God when he created all creation is that we bear the image of God. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, you bear the image of God. Hmm. Do you guys mean it? Do you guys mean it? How about everyone take out your phones and, and, and take a selfie and look at yourself and you bear the image of God. Mm. 
Some of y'all need to humble yourselves because you guys are saying it way too confidently. All right? We bear the image of God. It's crazy. It's not just that we're just accepted and loved. It's not that God accepts us and bring us, brings us into his family. Actually, there's a greater purpose for us. And that greater purpose is when you read the rest of the psalm, it's actually to display God's glory. You and I bear the image of God. We're reflecting the image of God. It is through you and I. It is through human agency. You and I are the masterpiece of God. The crown of all creation. We are to display the beauty and glory of God to this world. That's the purpose that God has given us. So this psalm, it highlights a couple things. God's greatness. Our smallness. And also God's greatness displayed through our smallness. We are small, yet we are glorious. Now, God loves me. In this psalm, we talked about the emphasis of God and how glorious he is and me. But I want to park a little bit at that middle phrase, that verb, loves. God, God, this amazing God loves me. I want to turn our attention to the second word of the phrase, God loves me. There's another emphasis in Psalm chapter 8 that we may not see so clearly. And that emphasis is love. And let me explain. The emphasis is love expressed through none other than Jesus Christ in this chapter. What I'm saying is Psalm chapter 8 is a prophecy of what is to come. Psalm chapter 8 is prophetic. And it's meant to be fulfilled. It's not only describing God and man. It's also a prophecy. Let me explain. In the beginning in Genesis, God created all things. He created man in the image of God. And he commanded them to what? Take dominion. Create. Subdue the earth. He gave man responsibility to rule and reign with God. But man sinned, and the image of God was marred. And the rest of the Bible, to shorten it, it's about God in his own wisdom, his ways, to restore what was lost. To restore the image of God in each and every one of us. How does he do that? He does this by becoming a weak little baby. He does this by coming into our world. As we read, talking about the insignificance and the weakness and the utter helplessness of a baby, he becomes that. Jesus comes. He becomes weak. God becomes weak. He takes on flesh. He becomes a human. He humbles himself. Not only does he become a human being, he becomes a servant. And not only does he become a servant, he becomes a sacrifice. The incarnation introduces a new name that we know of God. And that name is God Emmanuel. God is with us. 
in this Christmas, it's a time of, time of remembering. When God became a man, the lost glory of man began to be restored. Jesus had to come so that he would restore what we're reading about in Psalm chapter 8. What is man that he is mindful of us? Guess what? He gave us authority. It says in this passage, he made man to be a little lower than angels, but to rule over all creation. If you read here. But when I read that, I was confused. What do you mean? A little lower than angels. I mean, I should be happy enough with that, right? We should be happy enough with that. But you read here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Let me read it for us. But we do see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What does this mean? The author of Hebrew, guess what? In this chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, he quotes Psalm chapter 8. And the author of Hebrews himself, Scripture is testifying about Scripture. And he, the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus became a man. He stooped low. He became lower than even angels. He did this to suffer and die. He became a baby to silence the enemy of death. As we read in verse 2, Jesus became a baby to silence the enemy of death. When he said, out of his mouth, it is finished. It is finished. He became lower than the heavenly beings for our sake. I want to read this rendition of John 3.16. John 3.16 says this, God the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest invitation believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. When you think about John 3.16, and take some time to contemplate and meditate on yourself, who you are. You know, in this life, as we live here in Korea, everything is so fast. Everything is so busy. It's so hard to slow down and pause and do what David is doing in Psalm chapter 8. Sabbath. Rest. Contemplate. Pause. And you just think about just God. Think about God. Take some time to look in the mirror. And then think about yourself. In light of who God is. We need to take time to do this. A Sabbath-less life. 
will numb our hearts to the awe and wonder of who God is. So we need to rest. I want to close with this story of a missionary named missionary Won Sonyang. Won Sonyang. He is a missionary in Korea. Well, he is a Korean. He's a pastor, a reverend, actually. And during the time of the Korean War in the 1940s, when communism was strong here in this nation, during the time when this land was getting torn apart in every way, there was a time when Japanese rule was so strong here and then the government was trying to force people to bow down to the Shinto shrine. Many believers were getting persecuted and killed because they refused to bow down to the Shinto shrines. During this time, he refused to bow down. So he went to jail, tortured, beaten. When he got released, he opened a leper colony in Yosu. He takes care, he takes care of, of lepers. One day, there was a communist that attacked his two sons, Tongin and Tongshin. And they were trying to force the two sons to bow down to Shinto shrines, but they refused to renounce their faith. And what eventually ended up happening is their blood was spilled here in this land as they were killed, martyred for their faith. As they were martyred, later on the police, they caught the killer. They caught the murderer. And on trial, here is the father, Reverend Yang Won Son. What does he do? On trial, he tells the judge, as an expression of forgiveness, do not give him the death penalty to the killer. He looked at the killer, the murderer in his face. He said, I forgive you. For it is an honor for our family that we have martyrs for the name of Jesus. He looks at the two he looks at the boy that killed his two sons. And instead of going to jail, I'm gonna adopt you, and you will be my son. So this man, this boy that persecuted this family, that killed this man's two sons, he not only is forgiven, but he is brought into this family. Adopted as his son. And I'm sharing this story because this is just one of probably millions of stories like this. And I wonder, the murderer, I wonder what he was thinking. I wonder what he was thinking. I wonder if he was thinking, what is man? Who am I? Who am I that you would forgive me after what I've done? Who am I that you would accept me into your family? Who am I? And this story is just to its infinite degree is such a small expression of how God is to man. What is man that you are mindful of us? And what is man 
that you made us such glorious beings. What an honor and what a privilege it is. Can I ask the worship team to come up? And actually, that expression of what is man, that's how actually I came to know Christ as well. You know, I, it wasn't to the, to the degree of these missionaries. But I myself, when I was 15 years old, uh, long story short, I lived a very wicked life as well. I was horrible to my family. I would fight with my father and I would watch him trip and fall and hit his head and bleed and I would run away and saying, good, that's the kind of son I was. I was the kind of son where I would sell drugs in school, in church, and whatnot. And then I went to juvenile detention center when I was 15. When I was in there, it was the consistency of my father, whom I had so mistreated. It was the consistency of my father that would visit me every single week. He would not scold me. He would not yell at me. He would just ask me tenderly these questions, such as, are you okay? Do you need anything? We can't wait till you come home. When you come home, what do you want to eat the most? As I was expecting punishment. And then I would just ask myself. My heart would begin, begin to tenderize. My heart would begin to get soft. And I would ask myself, not in, in, maybe in the same words, but in a similar way, I, ask my, I would ask myself, what, who am I? Who am I? I brought so much of demerit to the name of my father. Who am I that you should ask me what I want to eat when I get out? What is that? Now, my father is a broken man. But how much more our heavenly father, who's so good to us, who's so glorious, who's so loving. This great God, God loves me. The emphasis is not on any of the three words. All three should be emphasized. God loves me. God loves you. That he came as a human being. He was made a little lower than the angels. Born in a manger in the most humiliating way. From his birth to his death, he was humiliated. This is the way he expressed his love. And today, as we're in this holiday season, we got to remember, we got to remember that the way he showed his love, we should Sabbath, we should rest, contemplate on who God is, contemplate the way that he showed his love, contemplate that I'm no longer an old creation, but I'm a new creation. I'm glorious. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That you, you made me like that. So right now, I want to give us a moment. If we can just close our eyes.